Book twenty one, chapters fourteen to twenty eight of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translation by Thomas Rice Holmes. Chapter fourteen. Having sustained these successive disasters, at Valonodunum, Cenabum, and Noviodunum, Vercingetorix called his followers to a council. He told them that the campaign must thenceforward be conducted on widely different lines. The object was by every means to prevent the Romans from foraging and getting supplies. This object could easily be attained, for their side was strong in cavalry, and the season was in their favour. No grass could be cut. The enemy must perforce disperse and get fodder from the barns, and the cavalry could destroy all these detachments from day to day. Moreover, in the public interest, personal convenience must be disregarded. All round the road, as far as the country was accessible for forage, the hamlets and homesteads should be burned. They were well off for supplies themselves, as they could draw upon the resources of the people whose territory was the theatre of the war but the Romans would either succumb to their privations or would have to move far from their camp, at great risk, and it made no difference whether they killed them or took their baggage, for, if it were lost, they could not keep the field. Moreover, it would be well to burn those towns which were not rendered impregnable by fortification and a naturally strong position, for fear they should serve their own side as refuges for shirking military duty and tempt the Romans to pillage them and plunder their stores. If this sounded hard or cruel, they should consider how much harder it was for their wives and children to be carried off into slavery while they were themselves put to death, and if they were beaten, this would be inevitable. Chapter 15 This view was unanimously approved, and in a single day more than twenty towns belonging to the Bituriges were set ablaze. The same thing happened in the territories of the other tribes. The whole country was a scene of conflagration and although all felt this a grievous trial, they consoled themselves with the assurance that victory was practically in their grasp, and that they would soon recover what they had lost. The question was debated in a general assembly, whether Avaricum should be burned or defended. The Bituriges knelt before their countrymen, begging that they might not be forced to fire with their own hands the town which was well nigh the finest in the whole of Gaul, the bulwark and the pride of their people. It was naturally so strong that they would easily defend it, for it was almost entirely surrounded by running water and marshy ground, and could only be approached at one place, which was very narrow. Their prayer was granted. Vercingetorix at first opposed them, but afterwards gave way, in deference to their entreaties and the general sympathy that was shown them. Capable officers were selected to defend the town. Chapter 16 Vercingetorix following Caesar by easy stages, selected for his encampment a spot, protected by marshes and woods, sixteen miles from Avaricum. He hourly kept himself informed, by organised patrols, of what was going on at Avaricum, and issued his orders accordingly. He watched all our expeditions for forage and corn, attacked our men when they were scattered, for they were obliged to go far afield, and inflicted on them considerable loss, although they took every precaution that ingenuity could devise to baffle him, starting at odd times and in different directions. Chapter 17 
Caesar encamped on the side of the town, which, as we have mentioned above, was undefended by running water and marshy ground, and was approached by a narrow neck of land. As the lie of the country made it impossible to invest the position, he proceeded to build a terrace, form lines of sheds, and erect two towers. He urged the Boi and the Edui unceasingly to keep him supplied with grain, but the latter, being half-hearted, were of little service, while the former, a small and feeble tribe, whose resources were slender, soon used up what they had. Owing to the poverty of the Boi, and the slackness of the Edui, and the burning of the granaries, the army was in the greatest straits for supplies, insomuch that for several days the men were without grain, and only kept famine at bay by driving in the cattle from distant villages. Yet not a word were they heard to utter unworthy of the majesty of the Roman people, and their own record of victory. Nor was this all. Caesar spoke to the legions singly while they were at work, and told them that, if they found their privations too hard to bear, he would abandon the siege. But with one voice they begged him not to do so. They had served under his command for several years without disgrace, and had never abandoned any operation which they had undertaken. They would feel it a disgrace to abandon the siege, having once begun it, and it was better to put up with every hardship than fail in avenging the Romans who had fallen at Cenabum by Gallic treachery. They said the same to the centurions and tribunes, charging them to repeat it to Caesar. Chapter 18 The towers were now getting close to the wall. Caesar learned from prisoners that Vercingetorix, having consumed his provender, had moved closer to Avaricum, and gone off himself with his cavalry and the light-armed foot who regularly fight along with the cavalry, intending to lie in ambush at the spot where he believed that our men would go to forage on the following day. Acting on this information, Caesar started quietly at midnight and reached the enemy's encampment in the morning. They were informed of his approach by their patrols and, swiftly removing their carts and baggage into the densest part of the woods, drew up all their forces on open rising ground. On receiving this report, Caesar ordered the troops to pile their packs promptly and get their arms ready. Chapter 19 The hill sloped gently upward from its base and was almost entirely surrounded by holding marshy ground, difficult to cross, but not more than fifty feet wide. The Gauls had broken down the causeways and remained obstinately on the hill, confident in the strength of the position. Formed up in tribal groups, they held all the fords and the thickets that bordered the marsh, determined, if the Romans attempted to force a passage, to attack them from their commanding position while they were bogged in the slush. Seeing the proximity of the two forces, one would have thought that the Gauls were ready to fight and that the chances were nearly even. But anyone who detected the disparity in the conditions would have known that their defiant attitude was mere bravado. The legionaries, indignant that the enemy behind that paltry barrier had the hardihood to look them in the face, clamoured for the signal for action. But Caesar made them understand that victory could only be gained at a heavy cost, and by the sacrifice of many brave men. He could see that for his honour their hearts were steeled to face any peril, and for that reason he should deserve to be called the most heartless of men if he did not hold their lives dearer than his own reputation. In this way he soothed the men's feelings and, leading them back the same day to camp, proceeded to complete his arrangements for the siege of the town. Chapter 20 Vercingetorix, on returning to his troops, was accused of treachery. The charge was that he had moved nearer the Romans, 
that he had taken all the cavalry with him, that he had left his numerous forces without a head, and that on his departure the Romans had rapidly advanced at the opportune moment. These things could not have happened by accident. They must have been deliberately planned, and evidently he would rather reign over Gaul as Caesar's creature than by the favour of his countrymen. In reply to these charges, Vercingetorix said that if he had shifted his camp, he had done so because forage was scarce, and at their own instigation. If he had moved nearer to the Romans, it was because he was attracted by a favourable position, whose natural features were its own defence, while cavalry ought not to have been required on marshy ground, and were useful in the place to which they had actually gone. When he left them, he had deliberately refrained from delegating the command to anyone, for fear his substitute might be driven by the impetuosity of the host to fight, for he could see that that was what they all wanted, because they were infirm of purpose and incapable of prolonged exertion. If the arrival of the Romans in his absence was accidental, they ought to thank fortune. If they had come on the invitation of a spy, they ought to thank him for having enabled them to ascertain from their commanding position the smallness of their numbers, and to see how despicable was the spirit of men who dared not fight, but slunk back ignominiously to their camp. For himself, he did not want to get from Caesar by treachery a power which he could secure by victory, victory which was already in his grasp and in that of the whole Gallic people. No, he would give them back their gift if they imagined that they were conferring a favour upon him, instead of owing their safety to him. To satisfy yourselves, he continued, that what I say is true, listen to Roman soldiers. He made some slaves step forward, whom he had captured foraging a few days before, and had kept in chains on starvation diet. They had been carefully taught beforehand what to say when questioned. They said that they were legionaries. Hunger and want had led them to steal out of camp to see whether they could find any corn or cattle in the fields. The whole army was in the same straits, and not a man was now strong enough to stand the strain of his daily work. The general had therefore resolved to withdraw the army in three days, unless he made some real progress in the siege of the town. These benefits, said Vercingetorix, you owe to me, me whom you falsely accuse of treachery. Thanks to my efforts, without shedding a drop of your blood, you see this mighty, this victorious army well-nigh starved, and I have taken care of that. When it seeks safety in ignominious flight, not one tribe shall grant it refuge. Chapter 21 The whole multitude cheered loudly and clashed their weapons in the native fashion for Gauls generally do this when they are pleased with what an orator says. Vercingetorix, they declared, was the greatest of leaders, his loyalty was above suspicion, and it was impossible to carry on the war with greater judgment. They determined to throw ten thousand men, selected from all the contingents, into the town, not thinking it wise to trust the national safety to the Bituriges alone, for they realised that if the Bituriges succeeded in holding the town, the whole victory would be theirs. Chapter 22 The extraordinary valour of our soldiers found its match in the manifold devices of the Gauls, for they are a most ingenious people, and always show the greatest aptitude in borrowing and giving effect to ideas which they get from any one. They pulled aside the grappling hooks with nooses, and when they had got hold of them, hauled them inside the town by means of windlasses. They also undermined and dragged away the material of the terrace, performing the operation very adroitly because there are large iron mines in their country, 
and they are thoroughly familiar with every kind of underground gallery. Moreover, they had covered the whole wall at every point with towers, provided with platforms and protected by hides. Again, they made frequent sorties by day and night, setting fire to the terrace or attacking the troops at their work, as the terrace, daily rising, raised our towers to a higher level, they lashed together the uprights of their own towers and gave them a corresponding elevation, and opening into the Roman mines, they prevented them, with beams sharpened and hardened in the fire, boiling pitch and heavy stones from approaching the wall. Chapter 23 Gallic walls are always constructed on the following or some similar plan. Bulks of timber are laid upon the ground at right angles to the line of the intended wall and in unbroken succession along its length, at regular intervals of two feet. These bulks are made fast on the inner side and thickly coated with rubble, while the intervals above mentioned are tightly packed in front with large stones. When the bulks are fixed in their places and fastened together, a fresh row is laid on the top of them in such a way that the same interval is kept, and the bulks do not touch each other, but are separated by similar intervals, into each of which a stone is thrust, and thus are kept firmly in position. Thus, step by step, the whole fabric is constructed until the wall reaches its proper height. While the structure, with its alternate bulks and stones, which preserve their regular succession in straight lines, presents a variegated aspect which is not unsightly, it is also extremely serviceable and adapted for the defence of towns, for the stone secures it against fire, and the woodwork, which is braced on the inner side, by beams generally forty feet long running right across, and so can neither be broken through nor pulled to pieces, protects it against the ram. Chapter 24 all the above-mentioned causes impeded the siege, and the men were hampered all the time by cold and continual rain. Yet by unremitting toil they overcame all these difficulties, and in twenty-five days erected a terrace three hundred and thirty feet broad and eighty feet high. The terrace was almost in contact with the enemy's wall, and Caesar was, as usual, bivouacking at the works, urging the men not to suspend labour for a moment, when, a little before the third watch, it was noticed that the terrace was smoking. The enemy had undermined and set it on fire. At the same moment a cheer arose all along the wall, and troops came pouring out of the two gates on either side of the towers, while others flung down torches and dry wood from their commanding position on the wall onto the terrace, and shot pitch and other inflammable material, so that it was scarcely possible to decide where to strike a counter-blow or what point to reinforce. But Caesar's practice was to have two legions regularly bivouacking in front of the camp, while a larger number, which took duty in turns, were constantly at work, so that a number of men soon checked the sortie, while others drew back the towers and dragged asunder the timbers of the terrace, and the whole multitude from the camp came thronging to extinguish the flames. Chapter 25 The rest of the night passed by, and still the fight was going on at every point. The enemy's hope of victory continually revived, for they saw that the breastworks of the towers were burnt, and that it was not easy to advance and support a threatened position without cover. In their own ranks fresh men were continually relieving those who were tired, and they felt that on that moment depended the salvation of Gaul. Just then we witnessed an episode which seemed worthy of remembrance, and we have therefore thought ought not to be passed over. A Gaul, standing in front of one of the gates of the town, was throwing lumps of fat and pitch, 
passed to him from hand to hand, into the fire opposite one of the towers. A bolt from a small catapult pierced him on the right side, and he dropped dead. One of the men nearest him stepped across his prostrate body and continued the work. A shot from the catapult killed him in the same way, and a third man took his place, and a fourth the place of the third. Nor was the post abandoned by the defenders until the fire on the terrace was put out, the enemy everywhere repulsed, and the fighting at an end. Chapter 26 The Gauls had tried every expedient, and next day, as nothing had succeeded, they took the urgent advice of Vercingetorix and determined to escape from the town. By making the attempt in the stillness of night they hoped to succeed without much loss, for Vercingetorix's camp was not far from the town, and the continuous marsh which intervened would make it difficult for the Romans to pursue. It was night, and they were preparing for their attempt, when suddenly the matrons came running into the open and, weeping and flinging themselves at their husbands' feet, passionately entreated them not to give them up, and the children who were their common possession to the tender mercies of the enemy, for natural bodily weakness prevented them from making their escape. When they saw that their resolve was immovable, for often in extremity of peril fear leaves no room for compassion, they began to scream and gesticulate to warn the Romans of the intended flight. The Gauls were terrified by this, fearing that the Roman cavalry would seize the roads and abandon their resolve. Chapter 27 Next day Caesar advanced one of his towers, and the works which he had begun were completed. A heavy storm of rain came on, and he thought the opportunity a good one for maturing his plans. Observing that the guards were rather carelessly posted on the wall, he ordered his own men to go about their work with a show of listlessness, and explained his intention. The legions, unobserved, got ready for action under the cover of the sheds. Caesar told them that now was the moment to repay themselves for the Herculean toils and grasp the prize of victory, and offering rewards to the men who should first mount the wall, he gave the troops the signal. Suddenly they darted forth from every point, and swiftly lined the wall. Chapter 28 The enemy, panic-stricken by this unexpected move, were driven from the wall and towers, but formed in wedge-shaped masses in the market-place and open spaces, determined if they were attacked to fight it out, shoulder to shoulder. Seeing that no one would come down on to the level, but that men were swarming all along the wall on every side, they feared that all chance of escape would be gone, and, flinging away their arms, made a rush for the furthest quarter of the town. There some of them, jostling one another in the narrow gateways, were slaughtered by the infantry, and others, after they had got clear of the gates, by the cavalry. Not a man wrecked of plunder. Exasperated by the massacre at Kenevum and the toil of the siege, they spared not the aged, nor women, nor children. Of the entire garrison, numbering about forty thousand, a bare eight hundred, who had fled precipitately from the town on hearing the first outcry, escaped unhurt to Vercingetorix. Later at night, he received the fugitives in silence, fearing that as they came thronging in, the sympathies of the host might be aroused and a riot ensue in the camp, he stationed his trusted associates and the tribal leaders some distance off on the road, and had the fugitives conveyed separately to join their comrades in the section of the camp which had been allotted originally to each tribe. End of chapter 28